We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Things looking bleak at the Arsenal right now, but don't worry, the consultants have it covered. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Alex Fittig, Black Man, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. When in doubt, hire the consultants. This time, the consultants will be working on a project, according to David Ornstein, to help uh, the club reconnect with the culture that that the fans and the, the players and the personnel need to uh, restore our club to greatness. Now, I realize that this is a fertile ground for satire and sarcasm, but I will accept that, honestly, any time a club thinks it needs to be more connected to its fans, needs to better connect with its personnel, needs to better connect with its traditions. Like, that's never, ever, ever a bad thing. Like, obviously, the hiring of consultants to reconnect with your culture, that's like red meat for me to tear into and be extremely sarcastic about. But I'm not going to do it, especially because uh, I did unburden myself of some things on the Instant Reaction Pod uh, for patrons over the weekend, and my big stock falling was Culture FC, and I talked about that at length and uh, got it off my chest and feel a little bit, as I usually do after I've ranted and raved, uh, embarrassed, I guess you could say, for for that. But to be fair, uh, I don't now feel the need to, to do it. Uh, so you can... Say what you like about the consultants, but as I said, you know, ultimately, ultimately, if the club wants to reconnect with fans, personnel, tradition, culture, like I, I say, God bless and good luck. I hope everyone had a good holiday weekend, whether celebrating Passover or Easter or just the fact that Premier League football was on, although that holiday is increasingly uh, less of a celebratory one. So your mileage may vary. We are going to discuss that and hopefully do it rationally. I don't want to rant and rave too much. He says, as the person who is known primarily for his ranting and raving. But here to help me not do that is Paul. You can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hold pause. Woohoo! And presumably here to help me not do that as well is Tim. You can find him on Twitter. Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Clive is finishing up his football responsibilities with the football that he is involved in. So he'll be on the Patreon pod tomorrow, the live stream on Wednesday, the instant reaction, the full pod. Day. It's a busy, busy week, and you'll have plenty of Clive. But for now, you will have to put up with us, which I think is no, no problem whatsoever. Tim, I'll start with you. Um, these are difficult moments for rational conversation because as is often the case, the, the results 
lead to conclusions that sound right or feel right emotionally, but maybe just maybe when when examined more closely, they don't they don't stand up intellectually to any kind of um, any kind of examination. And what I mean is that like. There is that part of me, of course, that wants to be like, you can't lose three in a row, and we're, we're a mess. This is disgusting. It's unacceptable. Everybody out, you know, sack the club, you know, fold it, burn down the Emirates, whatever. But, like, I am trying to reconcile what I believe was a not just a good run from December to April, but a legitimately good run based on good footballing principles and good performances from good players. And a three-game mm-hmm. slide now that definitely is not acceptable. Definitely represents a collapse in the face of a top four opportunity that we are all very sad to see go. And trying to really reach effective conclusions, sensible conclusions about what this is telling us about the club. So I'm wondering, do you find yourself giving in to... The word hysteria isn't fair because there's definitely valid reasons to be upset right now. Or do you find yourself more circumspect? How are you? How are you coping with this three-game slot? Oh, not very well. Um, oh, good. I don't. Th- <laughs> I don't think anyone is. Uh, quite frankly, I, d- I don't think. I, I remember um, saying, I think fairly ominously on the Palace podcast, and we were talking about the loss of Thomas Party, and I said something like, "Well, I can't see it not affecting us. Like, there's going to be a points penalty to that." Um, I didn't quite envisage this. <laughs> I mean, if you'd have told someone before the Palace game that we'd lose the next three, I mean, I think people would be quite alarmed. And here we are. And um, we didn't really not deserve to lose any of them. A couple of them we might have got a point from. We might have beaten Southampton on a different day, but we didn't really deserve to win. And it's certainly not the Palace game. So <laughs> that, that has to be reason for alarm. I, I think really... I'm trying to, maybe like you, I'm trying to just stay in touch with the truth of this, which always felt like we are reliant on about 13, like very heavily reliant on a small group of players. And we lost two of them. And that's just made our whole world collapse, uh, probably even worse than we thought it might. Like, I think if someone had told you after, you know, the high of beating Aston Villa and going into that international break, if someone had said to you, by the way, we're about to lose party and Tierney for the season, I think everyone would have panicked a little bit. Um, So in in that respect, it's perhaps not an absolutely enormous surprise. Again, I think the extent of it still is. I, You know, maybe if we'd got four points out of this, this period, like these three games, you'd have gone... God, yeah, that could have been like seven or nine with those players in, but it's it's pretty spectacular. And let's face it, probably some other chicken chickens coming home to roost vis-a-vis relying on, you know, very young wide players to keep scoring our goals. And and you know, perhaps and, and I think we were honest enough to to talk about this at the time after like Villa and Wolves, um, both victories over Wolves that they were perhaps quite a bit tighter than they should have been mm-hmm. and that that felt like mm, this you know we th- this can't keep going for us forever so if like Southampton maybe Brighton as well like I don't think we overwhelmingly deserve to lose either of those games nor did we overwhelmingly deserve to win and they're both games that on a different day we might have won, but you can probably say that about Villa and Wolves as well. <laughs> like Wolves created some chances when we were down to ten, and you know Villa, Villa had a lot of territory. Like either one of those could have finished a draw very easily. So it's it's you know we've been on a knife edge. 
I guess, for a little while, albeit I think we deserve to win the games I, I mentioned. But yeah, it, it, it feels like we always knew there would be trouble losing a couple of you know, um, very solid starting players, particularly party. And I'm sure we had the conversation post Villa, which player is the most indispensable. And I'm sure we all said party. So, you know, we can bask in the glow of being right about that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) But, but yeah, it's, it's still, it's, it's still, I guess what you're getting at Elliot is to what extent does it make you reappraise the good stuff that you saw before? And, you know, if the data is similar and it just so happens that the league is switching around, a a bit like under Wenger, right? We always used to say that we got to a stage where we'd always get around 70 points and that would vary from season to season between second and fourth. Um, And then once it got us like fifth, so it was a bit like Arsenal did the same thing every year and it just depend how, depended how all the pieces moved around it. And and I guess we're, we're potentially looking at that again and it's just like, have we done the same thing three seasons in a row and it's just twice it meant eighth and maybe this time it means fifth or sixth. Um, but I, I kind of, I still, I still believe I saw improvement and I do think... I think in short, we've got a, it's a personnel problem. I look at this team, Elliot, and I, and I still think it's well coached. Um, it looks like it more or less knows what it's doing. I don't see those awful brain fart moments as much. I don't see us losing our structure like horrifically or anything like that. Maybe we did against Palace in the first half an hour, but I, I don't see that anymore. What I just see is is like a total lack of threat. And therefore, it's very difficult to win games. So I I think, like, in in a weird way, most other things aren't great, but are kind of fine. I don't think we're a calamity anywhere. It's just we don't have any threat. And I do think we solved that with transfers, just like I think we improved quite a lot by buying four starting 11 players last summer. Like, that wasn't a feat of training ground prep. That was we bought four players for quite a lot of money. Um, And I don't say that to be dismissive. And I guess we need to do that again this summer would be my conclusion. Every single player we bought last summer started against Southampton. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like, look, two of those were like young squad players, right? Um, And, and four of them were starting 11 players. And I think the four starting 11 players have all been a success. And, and I guess maybe a lesson we learn is that when we go for players this summer, maybe we do need a bit more experience. And I guess one of the flaws of having like younger squad players like Tavares and Laconga to develop, the thing is, if you want to develop, you've got to play. And it's kind of, it's a bit of a, and neither of them have been able to play enough. And now we need them at a crunch time of the season. And, and you know, they're still not quite in pre-season mode, but, you know, they're rusty and they're young. So there's there's that to it. So may, maybe um, that changes the way we look at some of the signings we do this summer. I don't know. Yeah, you, you know, I also sort of wonder with the benefit of hindsight how we'll look back at this little period because, uh, Tim, you ever come across those tweets where someone posts an absolutely absurdly terrible Arsenal lineup? a picture, a screen grab of it, you know, like yes. in benefit of hindsight. It's like, remember when we tried to go through the Champions League with this lineup? And you're like, holy cow, that's a bad team. Like there's a small part of me that wonders if three or four years from now, we'll see a tweet 
with a screen grab of the Southampton lineup being like, remember when we thought we could get top four with this? And we're like, Sambi Lakanga, Nuno Tavares, Cedric, Eddie and Kedia. Wow. What were we thinking? You know, like, and again, yeah, yeah. there's also the possibility that some of those players go on to be very, very good for us, like Sambi and Nuno. And I yeah, hope yeah. they do, but I don't know. You know, we have a lot of youth in this team, which means we are projecting how good they could be. Mm-hmm. But it's not a guarantee. You know? <laughs> no, no. I, and I think, like I said, the, the starting 11 players we bought, who are more like 23, 24, like you've, you've got a good idea, basically, with them. Whereas, you know, Tavares and Lukonga are a bit younger. Um, so, so yeah, we've, we've really got no idea how either of those t- will turn out at this stage. Whereas, like, you'd say, like, Ben White, Ramsdale, like, th- they're internationals, Um you know they're they're established internationals and and so they they've been on that trajectory you know for a few seasons whereas yeah whereas Tavares and Lukonga you know good young players but yeah we don't know yet yeah yeah and and I mean look there are some records we're setting that aren't great it feels like the last few years we've had a lot of these I mean Orbino has been busy posting this stuff it's the first time since eighty three eighty four that Arsenal have lost three games in a row twice in the same season I mean that. That's not great. Um, That's bad. Yeah, it's real bad. But then there's other things. Like, we've scored just two goals from our last 73 attempts. We are underperforming our expected goals massively. And, you know, I I think that there is also just an element of we knew this team might be short of goals. We sent away the player who has the best and most experienced goal-scoring record, and we did not strengthen in the January window. And, And just so I don't come across the hypocrite, I was okay with that. But it meant we were going to have to manufacture goals. And part of manufacturing goals is just taking chances. And this is the issue, Paul, is that I find myself, more than anything else right now, searching for explanations. And that's a dangerous place to be because if you are committed to a conclusion, you'll be able to find the explanation that that matches that conclusion. So if you've decided Arteta is no good and he should go, and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, There are plenty of data points you'll be able to stitch together to reach that conclusion. I have a a little anecdote to explain where I'm at that's kind of funny. When I was younger, I had to make a big, big life decision. And I'm very close to my parents. And I called my mom for advice. And I, I laid out the things I had to do. And she's like, well, Elliot, I'm ambivalent. And it broke my heart. Because I thought ambivalent meant she didn't care because I didn't know the definition of the word ambivalent. (laughs) And I was like, my mom doesn't care about me. But actually, it turns out ambivalent means you feel strongly in both directions. You're torn. And ambivalence is a thing that is in short supply these days to some extent because you kind of have to feel certain one way or the other. And I am ambivalent. I find myself believing that seven out of 10 top level average managers could come into Arsenal and repeat what we've done over the last two seasons pretty easily. That maybe two out of 10 would do worse and maybe one out of 10 or one out of 20 would do better. I really don't know. I really don't know. I know that I believed the good run we were on was real, that the football was good, that the coaching was good, and that it was sustainable if we had a strong enough squad. And so I am ambivalent because I think that we should not lose three games in a row, even with the injuries, that the way we've responded to that injury crisis and the upping of the pressure for the top four is not acceptable. And yet, I I find myself unable to come to a conclusion one direction or the other, Paul. I am searching for explanations for what we're going through. But I think one of the things I really believe, as I finally turn this over to you, is that we are a team that because we are shy, goal shy right now and, and weak and playing a lot of young players, we need to play from the lead. We have not been a good team from behind generally under Mikel. And I think right now we are not built to play from behind. And that 
Bukayo Saka chance. You know, that is everything. That Martinelli goal that's disallowed at halftime for Brighton, like, those are moments that I think this team needs. Um, and you saw it because, frankly, I think the Southampton game was very different, Paul. We, we did basically dominate it. We just didn't have the cutting edge. That chance is huge. And I'm curious, firstly, before we get into the bigger issues, the sack of miss. Like, do you see that as it's behind him, he does his best, it's amazing save, he should put it away? Like, that, that to me, felt like the whole game right there. So I just got to clarify something. You think you're a proper supporter of this club and you're ambivalent about this? <laughs> and, and just to be clear, Google the word because I thought it meant apathetic. It does not mean apathetic. It means it means caring strongly in both directions. Just to so, be clear. <laughs> so do you think that ambidextrous means you, you can't be bothered to pick something up with either hand? Um. I mean, you know, when you put it that way, I should have known the definition of an English word. You're correct. Yes, all that fancy education, and I don't know the definition of basic English words. Thank you for highlighting that point for me. But right, now, are you as ambivalent as I am? <laughs> uh, no, I'm very, I'm very valent. Um, obviously, Saka should have got over it a little bit more, kicked it down a little bit into the ground, and Smithrow a little later on should have kicked it less into the ground, leveled it out a little bit. And those are two goals. They're probably our two best chances of the game by a mile. Uh, but alas, um, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And when you think of uh, Caicedo's goal, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, when we played Brighton, like he doesn't score that goal uh, tr- twice. It, no, uh, Caicedo. Uh, the guy who scores the one from out, the cutback. From outside the box that comes in to and he hits it game. first time. Yeah, in Brighton, yeah. Oh, oh, the se- right, the second. Uh, sorry, yes, yes. Um, yeah, he doesn't score that goal every week or every month or maybe once a season. So, like, games kind of come down to those moments, unfortunately. Um, and the M- yeah. Is that the goal I'm thinking of? Like, I'm no. genuinely, sorry, I'm genuinely Caicedo. struggling to think. It's Which CA uh, Brighton. Against Arsenal. Yeah. Am I forgetting a goal? Or maybe it was that uh, Palace? Caicedo plays for Brighton. Yeah, yeah, Brighton, yeah. That was their second goal? Yeah. It wasn't Wepu from outside the box, cut back to him, hit it in, inside near post? I think you're right. I think it was Mwepu. Okay. Maybe yeah. it was Caicedo who knocked it back to him. That but, Yeah. Just to be clear, this is world-class podcasting. This is what you came for. Yeah, go let ahead. Let me Sorry. distill the essence of it, um, <laughs> which is he hits it first time. It's a cracker, uh, but it, it seems there's a lot of players over their history have scored a cracker against us and never done it again. And like Smith Rowe, Saka, just like if they could just get – the, the flight of that a little better, we got ourselves a goal. And like you say, it kind of changes the dynamic of our outcomes here. And when we go up a goal, we do well. When we go down, down a goal this season, we do terribly. Maybe that's a little bit to do with the youth of the team. Um, but um, I, I think the other thing, like there's a lot of talk about when we go up a goal, we're good. When we go down a goal, we're terrible. But we've had so few draws. That's been the uh, maybe the strength of this season. We either win or lose, and we've done a lot of winning. Unfortunately, when we lose, we lose. But we don't have a lot of draws. So um, 
getting that first goal has been key. It has been everything. And we're just way off at the moment. Um, yeah. mm. it, in general, like uh, these are three different games. Palace, we were abysmal, just all off our own bat. Uh, we could not string passes together, whether they pressed us or not. And then they pressed us on top and we weren't in this game. Brighton was better, uh, but it wasn't good. This was a fairly good performance that lacked heft, that lacked uh, a, a moment of magic, that uh, lacked a central presence. And I actually think, looking back on it, Eddie was pretty good. He was probably better than, well, I think he was significantly better than Lacazette has been recently. So, in a sense, we didn't miss Lacazette in this game. <clears throat> I also think the other young lads were pretty good. Like, Sambi did a pretty decent party impression, partay. Um, maybe not the best partay, like, not when he's playing 8 out of 10, kind of getting close to worldly football, but... Like, we've had a lot of good results with party in reasonable form. And I thought Sambi was pretty good in this. I know we debated that on the Instant Reaction podcast. But actually, I think he held up his end of the bargain pretty good. I think Tavares was pretty good. I think Cedric was decent, apart from free kicks and banging in a few too many crosses. I think he was quite good at the tucked-in fullback. And my point on this is not to be Pollyanna on this. It's that, actually, I don't think we have too many excuses in this game, apart from lacking just a little extra uh, confidence and a little central thrust against a team that has three centre-backs, clogs the middle with four midfielders, were making sure they didn't get done after getting done 6-0. So it may sound like I'm saying everything's fine, everything's grand. It's not really. It's, It's, I don't actually think the player's missing... Uh, like top level party would have made a difference in this average party. Um, I don't like Sammy did. Okay. Um, we, that's why we kind of played our football. I think Eddie actually had a really good first half and was kind of a bit invisible in the second half, but that's because of his build and size and they clogged the middle. I don't think he actually didn't play well in the second half. He just didn't see the ball. So it, it's the worrying part of all of this is, uh, you can dismiss the Crystal Palace game. Um, you can say, you can see a line of progression to Southampton not being so bad and we, we could build some confidence here and kind of push on a little bit more, be a little bit more decisive in the in and around the box. But then you look at the games we're about to play and it's, it's troubling. Um, and back to Tim's question of, uh, does it make me question kind of what we saw before. Not really, but a disastrous end to the season could be very, very damaging. Um, yeah. I, be- I believe in the direction, the manager, what we've seen, where it's going. We know the squad's really thin. We can question the January window and discuss it, and I think that's very, very valid. But I'm very, very worried about if we're damaged at the end of this season. Well, this is why, I, why I'm ambivalent. My ambivalence comes from the fact that I find myself unsure. Like, are we going in the right direction? The people that would tell you, no, we're not, you're out of your mind, are going to point to the fact that, like, we're going to finish with roughly the same number of points, goals, and goals allowed. In fact, probably fewer goals and more goals allowed than the previous season when we finished eighth. And, you know, to the point that, like, well, we're probably going to finish sixth and make the Europa League, 
Like, okay. But that's as much a byproduct of what the clubs around us are doing as what we're doing. The points, the goals, the goals allowed don't look like an upward trajectory. But on the other side, you know, I realized that we we pared down the squad this season, and you could say that was a mistake. We had one game a week. When we had the players we needed and we were playing once a week, we were putting good performances together week in, week out with metrics, underlying metrics that say those performances weren't a mirage in a system that I, look, I got to be honest, I said I thought it was great. I thought it was what we, you know, what we'd been looking for this whole time. And it pointed towards a future that was very encouraging. And it has collapsed over the span of three games. And, and unfortunately, what happens when you're on a three-game losing streak is you then create a, a narrative to tie those games together, even though I think they're all very different, as you rightfully pointed out, Paul, physically out-battled, out-worked, out-matched by Palace, dreadfully slow and tame against Brighton, and just lacking the final, the final ball or the, or the killer, you know, the killer pass or the killer shot against Southampton. But Tim, just staying on the Southampton game more granularly for a moment, moment because it is obviously a moment where it is easy to just make everything um, about a referendum on the manager or the direction of the club. But in that game specifically, you know, I'm, I'm curious. First of all, do you have the the Saka miss down as a miss or a good keeper save? Where, where do you stand on that? Well, I, I was right behind it at the time, and my initial. It, it was one of those ones where I was celebrating, but it, <laughs> I was yeah, already yeah. celebrating. And and my, my initial reaction was, oh, wow, what a save. So that was my instinctive reaction. And I do think your instinctive gut reaction is usually quite instructive um, because particularly when you watch a lot of football, you just kind of have, you just develop that sense that, yeah, this is going in. Um, now, whether I felt that, I think I felt that when he struck the ball as well. I don't think it was just the kind of, oh my God, he's he's in front of a semi-open goal here. I mean, that's part of it. But when he struck it, I thought it was in. So I, I do think it, I, I think it was a really good save. Obviously, in retrospect, you look at it and think, well, yeah, get that a little bit further in the corner. But, but to be honest, the size of Forster and the way he was traveling, like, I do think that would have had to have been right in the corner unless, you know, Saka kind of double bluffed and like went across the goalkeeper. Um, and maybe had it, I mean, his, his Saka's right foot is pretty decent anyway. Maybe had it come on his left foot or something, maybe maybe he'd have, you know, had a bit more room for that level of imagination to think. I think oh, okay. anything on the ground beats him is my feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think that's where it being a little bit behind him kind of didn't help because he did have to kind of dig it out and that that puts the bobble on it um so i i i think it's maybe a bit of both but at, at the time it was very much like i was i was up you know i thought yeah i thought that's in and I, and i think like nine times out of ten a player gets a good contact on that and it goes in and i think that's what the player thinks as well i don't think in that moment a player thinks and and look maybe they should but i don't think in that moment a player thinks okay right i've really got to put this in the corner i've really got to concentrate on where i'm putting this it's generally if i get a good contact on this it's in um and and that's how i felt so i i do think i think it was maybe 75% brilliant save but obviously when you look around the edges yeah he could have put it in the corner maybe he could even have taken a touch or something like that but I, I do also think that 
the vast majority of the time that's what players do and it goes in like usually when you watch players score like a semi-open goal they don't tend to stuff it right in the corner or right in the side netting like they just prod it in and it goes in so I I understand the thought process for the player there yeah I I mean I'm Certainly not going to kill Bukayo Saka for that effort. I just think, and and I, I think the cross comes to him a little behind him, right? I mean, it yeah. gets there a little slowly. It, it is interesting, though, Tim. The thing that frustrates me a bit is I feel that the intensity of our play has gone out since the international break and that mm-hmm. we created a lot of chances during our, you know, good run, TM, uh, with pressing and recovering high up the pitch. And the one big, big chance we create in this game is Eddie Nketiah recovering the ball high up the pitch? Yep. One pass to Martinelli, one pass to Saka. And the rest of the game was the shoehorn of death. You know, the 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 passing around the midfield to the fullbacks, back to the center backs. You know, that we've seen that for years. Are you surprised that we we seem to have lost the intensity for cause because let's face it, right? We had two 20-year-olds and and we the best will in the world to Eddie Nketiah, a striker who's probably going to be playing in the championship next season. Like it's it's absolutely understandable that we might have a scoring issue and you could pull your hair out looking at what we could have done differently this season to ensure we had the goals to get top four. But setting that aside, one way you can manufacture them is winning the ball at the pitch. And we have the youth and theoretically the energy and the rest to do that. And I can't explain why we're doing it so infrequently. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird one. I, I think I can explain it in this game just by Southampton going 1-0 up and... You can't press a team that doesn't have or want the ball. <laughs> yeah, they, they had none of it. What, 20, 26% possession in the second yeah. half, I think? If they just keep launching it out like <laughs> from the goalkeeper, there's not really a lot to press. And, and I'm sure they did that by design for that very reason. Well, for a number of reasons and that being one of them. And, and it kind of, you know, that chance, it comes at nil-nil. Um, and so I, I think I, I can't really explain it. In the Palace game, I think we just got hustled out of our stride by having a a poor first half an hour which I think Palace inflicted on us Um, and don't get me wrong that's that's our fault for not being ready for it but I I do view that quite a lot as, as Palace being quite good and then like making the maximum out of that period for themselves um, Brighton, I can't really explain it because there did seem to be a real lack of intensity in that Brighton game, both on and off the ball. In, in this game, I, I wasn't necessarily watching it at nil-nil thinking we lack intensity. May, may, maybe we did. Maybe I should have seen it that way. But I was looking at it thinking, first goal wins here. <laughs> like this, this game hasn't got any more than a goal in it. And it just depends on who gets it. Because I was thinking, we'll probably get a chance... And we have to make sure we take it. And and yeah, so like the the lack of intensity, it didn't show up for me quite as much. And in the second half, I mean, to be fair, we were attacking the other end in the second half. This is something that a lot of teams are doing to us at the moment, um, turning us around and making sure we're not kicking in front of our own fans in the second half. Um, Southampton did it as well. So it was all up the other end in the second half. So I didn't have like a great panorama of how much pressing we were doing. But Southampton just didn't have the ball. So um, probably not a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's actually a very fair point. It frustrates me though, because like, I, you know, I, I just see, I see the way we create the one really big chance of the game. And I, you know, I feel like even though they don't want the ball, I, I, the closing down just doesn't feel as urgent and effective as it was. And Paul, there is a player though that for me during this period probably needed to be 
more more impactful, more um, just I, I think more of a leader. I mean, assertive. Let's put it that way, uh, because. I think Martin Odegaard is, he's young, but he's not a child. You know, I mean, he has a lot of experience for his age. Um, he is really the beating heart of the creative aspect of our game. He's being asked to play with, you know, some very young players or, or fading players or you know, however you want to look at it. And I, I really think, unfortunately, during this run, we've seen maybe the least effective Martin Odegaard. I... I don't know what's fair to expect of him, but like he's had some chances that he hasn't put away. I think he's had some some passes that were on that it took him an extra touch to play than it was taking him when we were really in our stride. He hasn't found the ability to to have that rapport on the right side pod the way he he did maybe a couple months ago. And let's face it, right? I mean, you need somebody, I think, in the in the in that area of the pitch to step up and and add some creativity and goal threat because right now that is just so sorely lacking and it's unfair to put that on one person, but he would have been a player that I would have said, if he can step up, he can, he can fill the void a little bit and that hasn't happened. I'm curious if you feel that it's fair to ask him to take on that responsibility. I I thought against Southampton, again, just a very six out of 10, five out of 10 type performance, nothing wrong, but a few chances he didn't take a few openings. He didn't, he didn't find the right pass. Yeah, I think that's fair. You're looking for a bit of magic from these players. Um, the the counterpoint to that is the last two games we played against two teams and maybe Southampton uh, watched very closely how Brighton managed us um, and having got thrashed the weekend before said, let's play different to that. So they played three at the back, um, crowded the centre, uh, kept a very good block in there for most of that game, which is the area you want Martin Odegaard uh, playing from. So the half spaces were basically not available to us in the first half. And in the second half, it was kind of, we got into a bit of an aerial, aerial bombardment thing because it was so hard to get through the middle. So, yeah, you want more from Odegaard. Um and you need a bit of magic from a couple of players, him, maybe Saka. And like at one stage, I saw Saka, uh, it was early on in the first half, um, when we still had him on the left-hand side, we started unusually with Martinelli on the right and Saka on the left. And after, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or something, swapped them around. But Saka on the left at one stage beat two guys only to find they had another two guys for him. Like they had four guys. Yeah. And no, like we had Nuno Tavares had fed him the ball, and his only option was to play it back to Nuno or go at these guys. They beat he beat two. He just had another two to beat, and he would have been the other side of them. So, like I think they'd worked out how to slow us down. Um, That means there's space elsewhere if you can get the ball there. So I actually think um, what we're not doing at the moment is not not switching, not moving, not redirecting because they're blocking the middle. They're blocking your Odegaards, your Sakas, and we need to have to, the maturity, the smarts, the savvy, uh, the confidence to quickly move the ball to the other side to give them uh, more more to think about. And instead, what we're tending to do is falling into banging in crosses and kind of a reductive way of playing. And we just need to be a little, it's, it's narrow margins in these things. Um, 
you need a goal to kind of build a little more confidence to loosen up the opposition so they come out and play a little bit more so you get a win behind you and then in the next game you you look around the dressing room and you feel better about who you got on your team you play a little bit more confidently a little quicker first touch instead of second touch i don't think we're frustratingly i don't think we were a million miles off in this game the problem is who you play next and take it on from and um you know uh, odegaard yeah he wasn't he didn't do anything spectacular in this game i think he was odegaardy no magic uh but like saka he was facing a lot of players they they knew how to to kind of slow us down and we didn't manage to to put uh, have that moment that kind of opened it up and that that then opens it up for Odegaard or opens it up for Saka. Not too worried, but yeah, uh, this is a, a game you're looking for a little bit of magic from one of those guys. Yeah, and, and like Tim, like I guess this isn't rocket science. We We don't score enough goals, and so everything's just on the margins. And that was the biggest mm-hmm. thing that changed during the good run, I felt, is we created a volume of good chances that was enough that we didn't have to grind it out but it was starting to fade to be fair right that villa game you know was a little on edge and and there there were signs that we were starting to go back and that's why people were calling for changes to the lacazette thing now whether eddie and kedia is an upgrade on the lacazette situation your mileage may vary but like if you want to get you know galaxy brained on arsenal you can but i think there's just a team that can't score it's not super surprising because our front line has two 20-year-olds, no striker, and a creative player in a slump. And, like, that that really could just be it. I, there is, there's absolutely no question that when a team goes in a slump like this, when a team has finished in eighth place in consecutive seasons and is, is slumping out of European places right now, there's going to be a focus on the manager. But I guess I'd turn it around and ask you this. What should be done differently right now? Because, you know, it's, it just looks like a team that can't score – and I don't know how you turn it into a team that can score with what we've got. I mean, no. maybe, just maybe, you know, what, 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 we don't have to relitigate chasing Aubameyang out of the club. I totally get it. It may have been the only thing we could do. But, you know, what did we leave ourselves with, really? You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I just, like, I don't know the answer either. And, and again, I think I said on previous pods, like, anyone that thinks that, putting Martinelli or Inketia up front is going to transform us is is kidding themselves they're not it's we're in a least worst situation because we don't have that capacity and and this is why people are so worried because there isn't an obvious solution which is why like I said earlier it's a personnel solution we we need to buy a striker we probably well we need we definitely need to buy more than one and we and we can't do that at the moment so i think the hard truth is there isn't a good answer to this other than maybe you know yeah let's try martinelli up front um assuming smith rose kind of fit enough to go out and play on the left on the left hand side and start there and play there with the intensity that we need for 90 minutes because that's another thing like it doesn't look. It looks like Smith Rowe's been carrying something for a while, so maybe that's one of the reasons we haven't seen this yet. Um, I, I can understand why you went with Inketia first up there, but I mean, even that. Like, if you play Martinelli up front, like you don't get any of the link-up play, and I know we haven't been getting that from Lacazette anyway. But he, he like he 
at least tries to play in those areas, he's been getting crowded out. That's the issue. Like he hasn't like stopped doing the things that he usually does. It's just everyone's figured them out. With with Martinelli, you wouldn't get that. And and you know what? Maybe that's fine. Maybe we do need to just do something completely different. But he will always just be running in behind. And and the problem also, Tim, obviously, is that you lose him off the wing, right? If you yeah, put him in yeah, the middle. Yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. So, and that's the thing. Like, have, having someone who only runs in behind is kind of as bad as having someone who only drops short to link up play. <laughs> and so, because what, what really, really good forwards do, centre forwards, wide forwards, they do a bit of both. That that's one of the many reasons Saka plays ahead of, ahead of Pepe. Um, because Pepe's got loads of talent, but he doesn't vary his movement at all. Not one iota ever does he vary his movement. He does the same things all the time. Ditto Lacazette. Like, Aubameyang did that a bit. I do think Aubameyang did come short and link up play um, when he played up front. It's a, it's a varying quality, but he kind of did it. But he was also... And, and we did have problems with Aubameyang up front in terms of low involvement, you know, just getting lost in a buried in a sea of defenders and what we really need is a striker who can do both and we don't have that we absolutely just 100% do not have it so honestly I'm stumped as to what the hell we do other than just keep trying shit and hope that it works hope that our luck turns a little bit and hope that we have enough to get us over the line because because frankly the hard answer is both the easy and the hard answer in that it's the hardest answer to hear is there isn't a solution available I, I do think it's that simple and I guess it's a question of and I think the answer is a bit of both how much have we just been found out and how much the losing like a couple of key um, players like Tierney and Party, like with our ball progression and things like that how much of an impact does that have it's probably both and it's all just happened at the same time at the worst time but If you find yourself in a situation in April of a season saying there isn't a solution, and I agree with you, then that means you did something wrong before. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that is going to set me off just the tiny little bit, I promise, not a ton. I am so annoyed by the fact that we try to have debates about squad building. And people say, oh, you're overemphasizing this. Shut up, it's not important. But then when it becomes important, people saying, well, that's in the past, leave it in the past. (laughs) <laughs> okay, yeah, but yeah. here's the reality, Tim. If Aubameyang's in this team, we're better. Maybe he's not great. Maybe he's not the Aubameyang we wanted him to be. He is better than Eddie Nketiah and, and probably Lacazette. Now, we have taken as gospel that he had to be moved out, and maybe he did, but we're not allowed to question that anymore. Ainsley well, Maitland-Niles had to be given his move away. We're not allowed to question that anymore. The position we find ourselves in right now, Tim, is a byproduct of choices. Keeping Shaka, not replacing. Resigning Oba, then kicking him out. Letting Ainsley Maitland-Niles go in January, not strengthening in January. You don't arrive in April with no options by accident. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I guess I guess the thing is with, um, with the striker thing, and I think this was an argument made at the time, that we've got to buy two strikers in the summer because Lacazette and Nketiah are both going. And about me, I mean, arguably three. Um, I guess Balogun comes into the picture there. But, you know, there, there's a part of me that thinks, well, maybe the Lacazette or slash Aubameyang replacement isn't available in January, but is the Nketiah? Um, replacement available and and look I've always argued I actually think January is a good time 
for Arsenal to buy players because it's when your competitors aren't shopping so much. And I think Liverpool showed that with Diaz, for example. You know, in the summer, there's probably a few other clubs in for Diaz, although I understand Liverpool had dialogue with him anyway. But the reason they brought that signing forward was because they were scared if they left it to the summer that someone would gazump them. So they came in in January. And and I'd argue that if you're smart and if you're a club like Arsenal, that has shitloads to do. Like we made six signings last summer and we've got loads of players leaving this summer. So it's going to be just as busy turnover wise. I don't think you can turn your nose up at a window and just say, oh, it's too difficult. So I do, I like, I do kind of think the Inketia replacement um, might have been, might have been like, I find it difficult to believe that wasn't doable. He could have gotten last January. Like all of these choices that at the time we're told they don't matter, they're minor, they're not a big deal, who cares? Like, okay, but then you don't really get to come back in April of a run-in when we have top four on the horizon and say, well, there's nothing we could have done. We're just left short because of injuries. Because Nketiah could have gone last January, which would have forced us to make choices. Aubameyang could have not been re-signed, which would have forced us to replace. Or he could have been kept through the challenges and struggles. And even two goals in the run-in maybe gets you into the Champions League. Or Ainsley Maitland-Niles could have been kept to be used in any number of ways in positions that we find ourselves struggling in. So like, and again, I know it gets tedious going back and relitigating old issues, but like those old issues are the reason we find ourselves saying, well, throw our hands up in the air. There's nothing we can do right now. They're current issues. Yes, that's exactly right. They are the decisions we made. You know, it's the whole, um, the, the Twitter, me, me reaping or me sowing. Ha ha ha. Fuck. Yeah. This is awesome. Me reaping. What the fuck is this shit? I hate this. You know, uh, Paul, you want to chip in on this? Yeah. So, uh, well, let, uh, I was going to chip in on the, what are our options, but, but what are, yeah, may, sure. Fire away. Yeah. Um, but before that, the squad building thing, look, the beauty of what we did, the, the upside is we have totally cleared the decks. So when it comes to this summer, like all we got to do is buy, we don't have to sell before we buy. We don't like the job straightforward. Go for your targets. That's the upside. Uh, the downside is if this season ends ugly. Um, when we look at the squad building thing, um, I would have said, well, like who actually had a good window? Like you'd say Spurs did. Uh, I'll come back to them in a second. But beyond that, n- nobody really. But then you came up with Diaz and like, that's kind of a good point. That's a brilliant window, but they do happen to be Liverpool and uh, they're going for Champions League final and Premier League and they got clap. Sorry, they got the clap. They <laughs> got mean, the clop. Which, it's, both are possible. <laughs> that might slow them down. Um, that football or, lifestyle getting to them. <laughs> yeah, did you notice that team's running a bit funny these days? Um, you don't want a false positive there, I tell you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, outside of Diaz and you could, I could make a reason why that wasn't going to happen for us and like, how did Spurs do it? Well, they had Conte and Paratici, who are from uh, Juventus. Juventus are a weird fucking club to deal with. And they got two Juventus players who they know all about and have relationships with. And Juventus did us in over Vlahovic and maybe even screwed us around a bit with Artur because they don't mind screwing us over. Like, outside of Spurs being able to get work done at Juventus for special reasons, it was a tough window again for people. And we did try. We tried to get Artur. I know that wasn't Tim's favorite, fav, um, 
favourite uh, option as a midfielder, but he probably would have been quite handy. Um, and we went big for Vlavic. Uh, I get the going for a second striker thing. Couldn't we have just got him? But like, if you have clear ideas and the guy's any good, it's hard to get. So the, like, it's just not easy. Um, on the other hand, that's what you're paid to do. I understand that side of it too. But the upside is the decks are cleared. The downside is if we're coming seventh or a miserable sixth, uh, it's pretty damaging to the club. Look, Aubameyang wasn't even play for, playing for us at that stage. And when he did play for us, uh, he wasn't scoring a lot. He wasn't doing a lot. So we should keep that in mind. Um, and we got, you know... We got Lacazette had been doing good. Now it's tailed off. I think the answer to where we might possibly get more goals, there's two parts to it. One is play better, move the ball quicker, move it around so that because like unless you have a six foot four striker, um, the issue wasn't Eddie and Katia in the second half. It was any kind of mid-sized striker standing in the middle is not going to get much joy. It's not like you can think of chances that Eddie didn't put away. He actually had a decent flick. Um, and outside of that, I don't think the second half was the, was Eddie. It was that we didn't move them around, mince them around uh, more confidently. And I think the other part of it that was interesting was we brought on Pepe and we kind of played him centrally as a second striker. Him and Saka rotated a little bit. But... Um, and I think he did some interesting things and interesting patterns. So if there's something that we haven't seen or thought about, you know, Clive has talked about this one a lot, and I've I've not been super on board with it. I never am filled with great confidence when Pepe is about to come on and uh, Arteta or one of the coaches is explaining the plan to him. Pepe looks the most confused person I've ever seen coming onto a pitch. But uh, uh, I Do you remember that video of Abue um, at the World Cup when Ivory Coast, were they playing like South Korea or something? Korea, He's yeah, pretending yeah. to listen in to the coach's instructions. <laughs> <laughs> he was nodding and kind of agreeing with the instruct. Yeah. Um, anyway, this was quite the opposite. This was a guy not understanding the instructions, but supposedly being able to speak the language. Anyway, I, I thought there were some interesting moments and movements from him. And the fact that he came on more as a second striker, you know, maybe there's some tweak or twist there, but I suspect we're, we're going to have to deal with Eddie and Laka. Eddie's first half, I would argue, was actually pretty good, pretty decent. Uh, it, there were kind of, there were moments where he was catching the eyes and I was saying, oh, he might, might actually have a good game here. But um, they clogged up the middle and he wasn't able to make the difference. It's it's funny, right? Because like, I bet if you ask Brighton fans if Brighton are well coached, well managed, if Graham Potter's good, ninety nine percent of them would say he's amazing. Well, Brighton have forty points; they're going to finish, you know, tenth, eleventh. We're we're going to finish sixth. So why don't we think our Ted is an amazing coach? Well, because we think we have a much better team that should have higher expectations than Brighton. And that's the really hard thing for me. And I said it kind of at the top of the pod. Like, maybe we're going to look back a couple seasons and be like, Sambi Lakanga, Shaka, Cedric, Nuno Tavares, Eddie Nketia. Boy, we we maybe over-indexed what we had there. You know, and, and maybe Sack and Martinelli. We don't know. I mean, I, I tend to think they're going to be extraordinary, but they're 20 and anything can happen. So it's like, 
the extent to which you think we're well-coached, well-managed is also somewhat a referendum on the extent to which you think we have a very talented team. Because I'm not convinced the team we put out was all that good, which then gets back to the, well, why are we in that situation? And then it becomes a circular argument and we just go back and replay the last 10 minutes. But Tim, the, the, the one thing that does seem to be creeping in, I think, is maybe just a little bit of stupidity, which is unfortunate. Like, I think we've been a very good team on set pieces, for example. I cannot explain what we were doing in this game on set. I mean, the Cedric taking set pieces thing does my head in, but it wasn't just that. There were some short corners, short free kick routines that, like, there was one where, you know, uh, Smith Rowe had to race to get to the ball just to kick it over the crossbar, you know, for a goal kick. Like, the little details, the things that we were getting right that made us look really well coached, right? The, the set piece defending, this was our first corner kick routine that leads to a goal. The set pieces that we were taking, and, you know, the way we were playing the game cerebrally, that I just about got that word out, like, that seems to have abandoned us a little bit. Yeah, the, the Cedric free kick thing was uh, was really interesting because, you know, largely, like, the crowd have been really behind the team this season. and um, <laughs> and But both, both of those free kicks happened right in front of the away end. Yes. And, <laughs> By the way, and, who, who were amazing? The away, the away, away fans, once again, deserve a clap because that was brilliant support. Anyway, or Cedric, because he was getting it from the Southampton fans for the whole yeah. game. And then, like... But wow. the, like the the first one, everyone was like, "Why the fuck are you taking it?" And then when the second one, like there was an audible groan when he went to take the second one, and when that went into the crowd, I mean, maybe that's what he was aiming for. To be honest, <laughs> maybe it was like, "I'll show you, bastards." Um, but <laughs> but the second one, it was just like, "Oh my god!" Like, and and actually, to be fair people weren't necessarily having a go at Cedric himself. It was more like the concept. It was more like, why, why is he taking free kicks? Like, why are you letting him like, what, like you saw what happened the first time. Like, and it does happen every now and then. Maybe someone's really banging them in in training. I, I remember Bakri Sanya taking a free kick once, um, like, a, like in a shooting opportunity. And it was one of those where he, he clearly, I don't know, maybe he was having a good week in training and he was feeling himself and he took one and it was dreadful and it never happened again. <laughs> so, and that's really what should have happened. Yeah. Cedric here. Yeah. Like, um, but then, but then I guess looking at it, there, there aren't that many right footed set piece takers in the team at the moment, I guess. Like, um, but anyway, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I, I tend to think with putting that aside, I tend to think with set pieces, honestly, they're so variable. It's a bit like winning penalties. You will find in one season, a team will just like score inexplicably score like 10 goals from corners. And then I bet you, you bet your ass the next season, it will be less than three. It will be like mm. one or two. And it's the same with penalties. Like you go through seasons where you get like 12 penalties. You know, How the hell did that happen? And then like next season it's one or something like that. So I, I tend to just think that that set piece delivery and execution is so variable anyway and look maybe that's another one of our chickens that's come home to roost a little bit in that we were scoring quite a lot from set pieces earlier in the season and maybe we were just due a little period where we don't score from set pieces so but but i think another chicken roosting is smith row banging in all those chances early on in the season exactly and in this game 
a little too much into the ground. And yeah, like like that chance he had, it's so similar to the goal he scores at Leicester. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's similar to throw. Yeah, yeah. We'd be similar. crowing about how he arrives in the right spot, and he does. Yeah, he does and all yeah. that stuff. But. Yeah, yeah, he he does everything he was doing earlier in the season. They're just not. They were going in then. They're not going in now. So, uh, I, I also think maybe the person there's personnel issues there. We know like Thomas Partey is a big threat from set pieces as well. He, you know, him on that front post, um, and he scored a couple of times this season. Um, maybe we've just you know we had a new routine, new few new routines, and they've been found out a little bit. I don't know, but then there are just some things that maybe are just a symptom of pressure, like letting Cedric blast the ball into the crowd twice in five minutes or that infuriating corner in stoppage time against Brighton, which I think made everyone want to cry horrible, horrible tears. And and I do think there's probably an element to which there's a little bit of, maybe just a little bit of pressure creeping yeah. in there as well. Yeah, just little little signs of lack of composure or lack of intelligence that that seem to have gone out of the team. Like even, I know this is picking on him, but the Ben White foul, he gives away really, really late. Where he doesn't have to do it, and it's just frustrating. Quitter tackle. Yeah, it's yeah. He, it a- he tried. What really irritated me about that, he tried to trip him the first time and missed, and then he did it the second time, and it's like, come on! Like you tried it the first time, you missed. You had time to reassess the situation. You got it out of your system. Like it's not a flashpoint. Like you've thought about this, and you've thought that's what I want to do. It's not just an emotional reaction, and that was very annoying to me. Do you have thoughts on on the goal then? Because, I mean, White stays down. Gabriel doesn't know whether he should push up and hold the line because White's down and behind the play, so he can't. He's trying to point to White saying, you know, please blow the whistle, ref. And so it's it's all a little bit of chaos. And then I, I don't think Ramsdale gets himself set quick enough to get his hands up. Like, the the, the funny thing is, for all of our our inability to really look threatening, dangerous in the last three games, what's gone is the solidity at the back that kept us in games when – in previous runs where we didn't look too um, effective as an attacking unit. So do you, do you have any qualms with how that goal was conceded? Not not hugely, to be honest. I think Lewis kind of nailed this on the, the instant reaction in terms of White falling over just changes everything because like, or whether he was fouled or what, I don't know. But because usually I am certain the drill is there. We clear it, we get out. And obviously, like, he's fallen over on the goal line and that throws everyone out, probably including Ramsdale. And again, it's probably one of those things that happens, like, I don't know, seven or eight times a game. It probably happened to Southampton within this game at completely unidentifiable moments where someone just stumbles or isn't in the right place or isn't on the right line and and you just never see it. And, you know, such is... and, and like I completely appreciate like the conversation again. You had an instant reaction about luck, and I, I I tend to think luck is you know generally speaking something you talk about. Like it's not something you can talk about when you lose three games in a row. But like maybe it was just, maybe this game more than the other two was yeah. just a, a fine margin, and our luck's out at the moment, and it went against us. And yeah. you know, it, and that was a symptom of it. I think. I tend to think, and this was my complaint with Arteta's football early on in his reign, the the less effective you are as an attacking unit, the more luck is going to play on, you know, on your results because it is a low-scoring sport, and the more devastating you are in attack, the more you can have a fluky goal go against you, you know, a bad penalty given against you, and still win a game 3-1. I do still want to talk about the manager um, a, a little bit, and not hysterically, 
Uh, I want to look ahead to Chelsea and talk about what's still on offer this season. But I have, uh, I have been derelict in my duties of actually hosting this podcast appropriately because your life will be manifestly worse if you are not taking care of your health. I think that goes without saying. Uh, we've all been living through a period of thinking about our health a lot. And I am someone who, you know, once I get a habit, I'm really good at staying in habits, but certain habits just drive me nuts. So like I was trying to take a probiotic. I was trying to take a vitamin. I was trying to take all these things. I have this counter full of stuff that I take to try to be healthy. And honestly, I, I wasn't very consistent with it. Um, some of it was really, really expensive and I wasn't even taking it. And so uh, a friend of mine who is a doctor, an Arsenal fan, a season ticket holder and a fairly prominent doctor at that saw that I had this athletic green stuff. And he's like, oh, you're going to love that. I take it every day. So first of all, right there, I was like, all right, well, that's that's actually a pretty good reason for me to try it. So I've been taking the Athletic Greens AG1 for a couple of weeks. And first of all, it's the easiest habit in the world. It tastes good. It's like one glass of water, basically, and you get everything. You get probiotics, you get vitamins, you get adaptogens. If you have gut health issues, and I have had gut health issues, um, this is a godsend. As someone who has two young kids and sleep is an issue for me, uh, energy wise, like I had uh, downtown meetings, meetings at like a, an office last week, which I don't usually have to do. And it was like the eight hour PowerPoint thing, which nobody likes. And I forgot to get a cup of coffee before driving in, but I did have my athletic greens and like, I felt just as energized as I do after my coffee. So I can definitely vouch for the fact that it's a, a great source of energy. I just really love it. I, I think it's a healthy thing that you can do regardless of your lifestyle. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, doesn't matter. It's got one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals, nothing like that. So sleep quality and recovery, mental clarity and alertness, like it's been great for that. Um, it, it's also like one of these things that, you know, I think just in terms of the company themselves, they're climate neutral certified. They um, give money to no kids hungry. So in 2020, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. So as you know, like we believe in philanthropy at this podcast, so that really appealed to me. It costs less than like a cold brew every day or a, a fancy coffee every day. There's over 7,000 five-star reviews. It was created by someone who's in the fitness and gut health industry. So like it just, it's a great product. And if you're like, I should start taking vitamins or probi you know, probiotics are important or whatever the case may be, if you have gut health issues, alertness, sleep, vitamin deficiencies, like this is maybe the solution you've been looking for. So uh, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of the vitamin D supplement that you can just drip into it, which I do every day, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash vision. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash vision to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash vision. And I can personally vouch for the fact that you're going to love it. I will also tell you that uh, if you are healthy as a human, you also want to be healthy as a business. The best way to do that is hire the best talent. You know, according to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site in the world. And they produce four times more hires than all job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Well, that's right. It's the only place we can attract, interview, and hire all in the same place. With great steps like... Um, uh, instant match assessments and virtual interviews. They will help you find the right talent with instant match. As soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on indeed that match your job description. You can invite them to apply. So they're like, Oh wow, this company wants me to apply uh, that. They, they must like me. And that's going to make them more encouraged about the process. And you only pay for quality applications that meet your must have requirements. That's pretty good, right? Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to indeed.com slash blue wire to claim your $75 uh, job credit. 
before April 30th. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Tim, is that enough of that? Indeed. Thank you, sir. Okay, Paul, um, so th- there are a few more things I just want to pick out of this. And I, you know, I mean, I think we hit on a lot of things in the game that were sort of frustrating. There is definitely going to be what always happens when a team goes on a slide and understandably fingers pointed at the manager. Again, we talked about amb- ambivalence. The The issues that confront us right now definitely have a lot to do with talent, a lot to do with injuries. They may have something to do with the manager and and everybody's going to have a different perspective on that. The one thing that I can say for sure though is not every manager is going to get three seasons or so to prove that they're on the right track. And I think Arteta has a really challenging uphill battle to face between now and the end of the season because the fixtures get real tough now. And it is entirely possible that we could finish this season on roughly the same points as last when we finished eighth with more goals conceded and fewer goals scored. And you look at Klopp taking over at Liverpool when they had a decent manager, but they went for him because he was available. And Chelsea had a bad manager. They got rid of him quickly and they went for Tuchel because he was available. And you look at Manchester United and they're, you know, going for Ten Hag and granted, maybe they stuck with Solskjaer a little too long, you know, and and we'll see what happens with that. Um, But a manager that I rate really highly. And the fact is, whether it's right or not, if this season comes off the rails at the end, there are going to be people saying, how much time does this guy get to prove it? So I'm curious what you think where we are in terms of that calculation, what needs to happen, the balance of this season and how we have to kind of right the ship and rescue it such that the progress we thought we were seeing from like December to April and feeling really good and it's on the right trajectory, we cleared out, we brought in fresh blood, we you know trust the process. How at risk is the trust the process stuff in your view based on what happens between now and the end of the season? Um, look, I think Arteta, one of the things you see when, uh, clubs replace their managers you mentioned Chelsea is they to use the cliche they lose the dressing room um, I've no sense that these guys don't believe that uh, Arteta is on the right track making them better That I totally agree with that for what it's worth yeah this team it, it's if it gets a bruising for the rest of this uh, run in uh it, it's going to hurt them. Um, I think they'll still ban- like we're, when they get four or five new faces in the summer. It's going to feel like um, you know we've shook things up and we push forward, etc. So I think they'll brush that. They're young; uh, they don't know any better than to kind of be enthusiastic and excited, and it'll feel all new and fresh. And we'll go again next year. Um, the, there's this philosophical thing called the ship of Theseus. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, mm. Where the philosophical question is, if you take a ship and over time replace each board in this wooden ship, an old wooden ship, but a big one, with, say, thousands and thousands of boards. I thought that- diversity was an old, old wooden ship. Sorry, that's a that's an anchorman joke. For any anchorman yeah. fans out there, they say, does anybody know what diversity is? He, he <laughs> I, I got this. I believe it's an old, old wooden ship. <laughs> no, yeah, the parallels between you and anchorman continue. I, I um, got to level with you. There's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> so you pl- replace these planks one by one. After you've replaced all the planks, is it the same ship? Uh, I don't know, really. Um 
every plank in this ship bar Chaka yesterday. Shaka for those who want me to, or sorry, Saturday, who want me to pronounce it differently, um, is different. Like none of those players were at the club before Arteta arrived. We've done a huge amount of change. And so when you do comparisons to Klopp or this or whoever, or how if we come sixth but with the same number of points, but like context is absolutely everything. Or you just look at results and points and outcomes and you say, well, if if it's only if we only get the same number of points, we've made no improvement, uh, get him out. He's terrible. That's three seasons in a row. We'll have finished uh, twice on eighth, uh, the third time on the same number of points, even if a better position, blah, blah, blah. But it's all about context. And for me, there's no doubt that the football, the style, the direction – uh, the direction the team's going, uh, the signings we've had, all six, as Tim astutely spotted, all six young players uh, on on the pitch on Saturday, I would say all of them doing pretty well for where they're at in their careers. Uh, lots of hope, lots of direction. You, you can look at outcomes or you can look at context. You can um, Reasonable people will combine the two. But all that means is we're going to have a shitload of arguments on Twitter in the meantime and over the summer because we're not going to end up in the same place. I still think where we're going, what we're doing, our major issues at the moment are um, depth of squad. So when we lose a player, like I think Sambi was pretty good yesterday, but it took him two games to get there, right? It's taken Cedric a bunch of games to get where um, he's a reasonable right fullback. It's taken... Tavares this game after a couple of really dodgy moments and other times when we should have rested Tierney to get to the the point he was at against Southampton. Uh, Eddie's had a lot of mediocre performances, even if I'm right that he actually was fairly handy against Southampton. So, like, it's just too far a fall off. And then the other thing I'm minded of is Conte, you know, we look across at Conte and Spurs and their signings in January and stuff, and he's insistent that he wants experienced players for a reason. Well, we've taken a different path that we were all on board for, and we know there's a cost to that, that when you come to the business end of a season with a super thin squad and the upside of a thin squad as we go in to the summer um, – with the decks cleared, with the Obama-Yang problem solved. And that was going to be a problem if we didn't get him out before the summer. Uh, the money, the spot, the hangover that having your most expensive player and captain uh, not being at the level um, and not contributing on and off the pitch the way you needed to be. We've done a lot of work. Uh, we we haven't got everything right there. We've made a lot of mistakes in getting to this point, but there's a lot there's a lot of things that are good, uh, but it could be an absolutely ugly run in that basically pisses in the swimming pool, and cool heads will have to pick through um, the the stew to decide what you want to eat and what you don't want to eat out of it. Mm. Well, Tim, let me ask you from a man at the stadium viewpoint. We have talked a lot this season, and I, I certainly agree with this, that a sense of goodwill and connection between the, the club, the players, the manager, and the fans have been rebuilt. Some of that is just because you got to go back to the stadium. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I, I heard you saying, I think, was it on the Arscast where you are saying, like, you've loved this season, right? That, that yeah, yeah. This has been one of yeah. the more fun ones for you in a while. 
Do you think that goodwill is bulletproof through the balance of this season? Do you think that Mikel and the fans and the players and the goodwill that's been at the ground this season is going to carry through the balance of this season no matter what? Because we often hear Twitter's not real life, and I tend to agree with that. And people are much quicker to express their frustration on social media than they are at the ground. But do you think that that there's any vulnerability there based on how things are going right now? Or do you think basically that at least at the, where the stadium is concerned, where the away support is concerned, that the support for this group of players and manager and this season is going to be bulletproof no matter how the running goes? So it, it, that that's difficult. I don't sense. Um, it's weird any... that you're playing a recording of me in the background <laughs> there, because that's what I sound like to most people. Just a wailing babe. Yeah, please yeah. go for it. Yeah, no well, problem. there you go. Um, <laughs> what a wonderful kind of uh, <laughs> analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I uh, basically it's always to, because like it's never completely bulletproof, right? Never like that. That will never happen. Um, I didn't really sense, like I didn't sense it turning on Saturday. Put it that way, um, amongst amongst the away fans. Obviously, lots of disappointment and blah blah blah. But I, I didn't sense anything visceral or underlying there. So, I mean, look, if we lose every game, it it, it will snap at some point if we do that. Um, but I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm not. I guess to be fair, the players came over at the end and there was a little bit of like, ah, oh, you know, fuck off. But like, not, <laughs> not like absolutely. It's just like people being disappointed at the final whistle. It wasn't like sustained. Like I basically, I, the, the last few years under Wenger, like it was horrible, right? It was absolutely horrible because that visceral sense of, I hate this. I hate this team. I hate being here. I want it all to change was there for a long time. And it was, it was horrible. And, and I will always carry a tiny, tiny bit of resentment to Arsene Wenger for not just leaving and instead allowing that to linger because I think it did so much damage and 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 I like I don't sense that we're nowhere near that whether it's bulletproof for the whole season I don't know like losing at Chelsea and Spurs <laughs> might, might test it um a little bit well don't get me wrong it's being put to the test at the moment so I, I it, it's obviously not bulletproof I don't sense in the away crowd anyway that it's going to snap soon but mm. but but I don't know. I don't know. Like if if we lose five nil at Chelsea on Wednesday, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everyone's getting applauded off the pitch. Um, but but I do get a sense that the thing is when you've got something like that, that kind of like that feeling of goodwill, you kind of you don't let it go without a fight. And when it went under Wenger, it took years. It took years and years to get to that point because you don't want once you've got that. You, you don't want to give it up easily. And that's that's how I feel at the moment. I like I feel like it's fragile, you know, and I just think like, no, 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 no. Please, please don't do anything to ruin this kind of, this nice ambience we've built up. So I do think that with the away crowd, it, it won't go without a fight because it's just been so, like regardless of whether, you know, whether the team deserves that or the manager deserves that or, or not. Like I do think that everyone's kind of enjoying it and it's like, 
no, no one wants to break ranks and burst the bubble at the moment, no matter their private reservations. And I've, I think I've said before, like the, the the thing that was extraordinary about the Villa game was it was the first the Villa away game was the first time that there was a bit of an outpouring for Arteta. Like this has all happened, I think, quite independently of the manager. I think it's the players that have driven that kind of relationship. So. Yeah, I like. I, I don't necessarily think Arteta himself is a particularly unifying or divisive figure um, at the moment, which I think makes things a little bit more secure. Because I don't necessarily people think people think right if we just drive Arteta out, everything will everything will be better. I I don't think people are that sure about that at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely easier. To, to keep the support going in part because the players that are struggling right now but ultimately led to this goodwill are young. They We think they have a bright future, right? Like we're, we're excited about the direction enough that I think even if the season ended terribly, that wouldn't change how we think about Smithrow and Saka and Martinelli and, you know, maybe, you know, White, Gabriel, Tierney, Tomiyasu, Ramsdale, you name it. Um... But, you know, everyone, everyone will look a little differently at that. Tim, let me stay with you just for a second to just follow up by asking you this. I am sort of content to say I've had questions about Arteta at times since he's been here, and I've also been really excited by some stuff he's done at times when he's been here. I don't feel the need to have a decision or a conclusion about him right now. It is, as ridiculous as it sounds, possible that Arsenal win every single game the rest of the season and finish top four or don't mm. win again and finish eighth. Um, it, I cannot tell you what's going to happen because right now we feel like a leaf blowing in the wind. I I am perfectly fine just saying like, yeah, those doubts exist, but also the reasons for confidence exist and, and not having to reach a conclusion as dissatisfying as that will be to some people. Are you nearing a conclusion? Are you fine to just leave it open-ended and, and see where it goes? No, totally open-ended. And, 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 and I think that's the space I've been in pretty much since we've had Arteta. Like I've flip-flopped slightly on either side, but I've never been firmly we must get rid of him even like when things got really bad and i've never been really firmly no he's he's the next big thing we might like i and that's partially partially because i understand that he's a young coach and he's learning and we're learning about him and it's very difficult to completely understand the projection because there are no priors it it's also honestly a little bit just because I don't have the energy to talk about managers that much anymore after, again, after the end of the Wenger years. And then Spare, Emery, yeah. who I, I, I was just never really sure about um, that appointment. And I, I never, like, there was no point really where I felt like, oh, this is going to work. Like, I always felt it was always a little bit waiting for Godot with um, mm. with Emery. And so uh, th- there is a big part of me that just thinks, Jesus, I haven't got the fucking energy for this. And I do kind of think, I think Paul said something really, really to the point, I think when we discussed a couple of months ago, the whole, like, should he get a new contract thing? And it's like, well, who cares if he does or not? Because, like, Solskjaer got a new Man United contract in July. By November, it wasn't working, so they sacked him. Like, that's, we, we apparently, Sanyehi, um wanted to give Emery a new contract in summer of 2019. <laughs> it, it took them a long time after, but still, in November, they sacked him. So it's, it's a bit, like, immaterial, really. And, and I feel like I can't, I, I just don't want to attach myself to a manager unless... I'm sure either way, and, I, and I, I'm just not really with Arteta, and I never have been, so I'm kind of happy to keep it open-ended, to be honest. Yeah, and I mean, 
this is the problem, right? Like, there is pressure to the extent that I feel pressure. I do feel pressure to like have an opinion about the manager and get into that. I can't, but like, I can only tell you what I feel, which is, I think this guy knows how to coach. I really do. I think maybe he has some blind spots around squad management and management in general that, that we, the, the problem is right. The coaching stuff you see on the pitch and we can analyze the other stuff we're always guessing about because it happens out of, out of the limelight to some extent. And so I, I'm not, I'm just not ready to have a conclusion. I want to see how this season ends. What I am sympathetic to is this. There aren't a lot of big clubs that are going to give a manager three seasons of middling results to just go find himself and figure it out, even if it's not his fault, right? That manager is going to get sacked, even if it's the club that's a mess or the talent isn't there and it, it won't be the manager's fault, but that's just how football goes usually. But I do think that the period of this season that was good, I don't think was a mirage. I think the thinness of the squad has been exposed. The danger of leaning on youth exclusively has been exposed. And the frustrating part is it felt like a door opened this season that we weren't expecting to open. The reason I didn't think top four was a reality is I thought Chelsea, City, Liverpool, and United were good. And that we'd be maybe better than Spurs or maybe just behind them, but probably just better than them. But that's about fifth or sixth, and that's about the best we could hope for. And it turned out United weren't good. And that changed the dynamic of this season. And it looked like we were on pace. Let's face it. When we had the players, we were on pace to do something really special. Low 70s points, looking pretty good for months, and finished top four. The wheels have come off it spectacularly. And yet we find ourselves in a position where it's still in our hands, technically, if we just go win all our games. Just go win all your games, LOL. I get it. But, like, that's the job. Go do it. It's not, it's not impossible. It starts with Chelsea. And as a final point here, Paul, before we say goodbye, Chelsea have an FA Cup final on the horizon. They have nothing to play for in the league. Their third-place stature is really not under threat. The problem is Chelsea can rotate and put players on the pitch we'd be desperate to have available right now. I, I still think that we can win this game. I mean, it just feels so silly to say when you're on a three-game slide and you've lost to the likes of Palace, Brighton, and Southampton. But, you know, maybe just maybe teams that are a little better set up better for us right now because we don't have the talent to impose ourselves on the opposition so much. But maybe we have the talent to be a little bit more of a reactive team. And maybe at Stanford Bridge, we'll have the chance to do that. You know, if we can beat Chelsea and beat you know United and West Ham and beat Leeds and beat Tottenham, and beat Newcastle and beat Everton, then we're top four. It's very simple when you just say it that way, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just need to say it in a way that you or anybody else believes it. Um, yeah, obviously. I want to speak it into existence. I, I really, really, really want it to happen. Yeah. For a long time, it's always been the case with these 5-3 predictions that the team who got their shit together and went on a bit of a run would get it. That's why I was never overly enamored with whether we were 50%, 33%, or 70% in that thing. It's fucking irrelevant, right? The same weekend, it moves because one team wins a game, the other team loses a game, and you've opened up a six-point gap. Like, that's huge. Every weekend, it's still the same. If, if we start being good and somebody else has a wobble, uh, it's there for us. The challenge is... The sequence of the games we play. So we play Chelsea, then we play United, if I remember right. And if we lose to Chelsea, which is reasonably likely, given the circumstances, then our confidence does not get any higher. And I think the difference between the team beating Southampton on Saturday and not was maybe just the 
the lack of confidence of the two previous games. We were almost there. It was almost a good enough performance where we should have got a couple of those chances and created a few more and moved it around a little faster and etc. Um, so I, I'm pessimistic about the Chelsea game, I've got to say. Um, but I do think the answer is score first, which we're well capable of, um, and then solidify and uh, kind of be more conservative, which we haven't really done all season. We've tended to play our football, but I think that would be one game where if we win it, it's because we did actually get the first goal and then we got uh, fairly pragmatic in how we played. And that's how you get a result at the moment at Stamford Bridge. And then depending on how we come out of that game, um, United is a good opportunity for us, or it may be, the fifth game on the trot potentially where we have a damaging result there let mm. me leave you with that yeah i think that that's a fair way to put it look the there is a catharsis in getting angry at losing three games and there is a catharsis three straight games there's a catharsis in getting angry about losing a chance at top four and especially in light of the fact that spurs had lost just before we kicked off, and the door felt very much open again. The getting angry, I understand. The even sometimes saying some stuff that in the cold light of day maybe doesn't really stand up to scrutiny because you're upset. And, like, this is sports. It's okay to lash out and say something silly because you're upset, not, you know, like, hateful or in that way, but say something silly that doesn't make sense about the team just because, like, you're frustrated. It's okay, right? Because that's kind of what sports are there for. You know, emotion that you can throw out there that doesn't have the same significance as it would at your job or in your family. But when we actually sit down and try to analyze this, I think it is a much more complex issue that ties into squad building decisions we've made and the decision to pare the team down and the thinness we face now, plus the youth of the team that we have and a a tactical solution that was working really well that wasn't sustainable in absence of some of these players. And all that combines to make this a really tricky period if we can get it together and even just finish with a few good performances and a few of these big games, maybe we win the Derby, but don't come top four. I think we can go into the summer feeling really great. The fear for me would be if it if the wheels really do continue to come off, if we slide, I mean, God forbid, to seventh. I don't think that's possible the way West Ham are playing. Um, I just hope that we can go into the summer with clarity. Clarity that we're still on the right track, that we just strengthen and we go again. If we can't go into the summer with that, then I think the club feels very much like it's in stasis and I'd like for us to be able to avoid that. That starts though by turning around this slide. And if it happens against Chelsea, I think a lot of the anger and sort of snap judgments that we made from this three game slide are going to flip the other direction. We'll have won that fabled game in hand we've been holding on to for a long time and suddenly everything will look back on again. So let's just focus on doing that because I think it is absolutely doable. Thank you for focusing on our ability or inability to make sense of this. The word of the day is ambivalence. It's okay to be ambivalent. Just don't be apathetic. Tim's on Twitter, at Strobido. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure as always. Paul's on Twitter, pause my pants. Thanks, pause. And the player of the day is Caicedo. That that person did not score against us. I just <laughs> want to be clear. <laughs> just Because that was a fun part of this podcast. All of this was fun. Uh, and Clive will be on the Patreon pod tomorrow. We'll have a pre-match live stream, which ensures victory. We're turning that jinx around on Wednesday. Instant Reaction Wednesday. Full pod Thursday. And on and on as we go to top four. Dare I say it? Keep hope alive. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Chelsea Neal.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.